The Tom Woods Show, episode 1749. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here, all by myself today. Man, yesterday I was not feeling well after coming back from that trip. I, I, for some reason, I was just exhausted. Maybe it was because I got in at three o'clock in the morning and then had to get up with the kids a few hours later. And I don't know why that just knocked me out as badly as it did. So I used a fill-in episode yesterday, but I am back raring to go today. And before I get into the main topic for today, there's just something on my mind I, I want to mention. While I was in Wyoming, I had a chance to visit Heart Mountain, which is the location in Wyoming where at one time as many as 14,000 Japanese individuals were confined during World War II. And now they have a place where it's a, it's a small museum and you can actually go there. It's the actual site where these people lived. And it's a very, very well done little museum. We learned a lot from it. And after we were all done, we noticed at the very end, they have a little display where they take people's, just ordinary people who have been to the museum, they take people's feedback written on index cards, and they put these cards behind a glass case so that you can get a feel for what different people thought of the various exhibits. I guess there was one that just made me crazy because it was so boomer. And also because I thought to myself, you know, back in high school, I could see myself having said this, heaven help me. So you've just observed people who had to basically gather up all their things or basically take what they could carry and somehow with almost no notice dispose of or sell everything else and indefinitely close their businesses and what I mean they were going to lose everything they're going to lose their houses they weren't going to be able to come back and reclaim anything and just be sent to the middle of nowhere to live indefinitely now that's a that's not good right you would think that's just clearly not good and yet somebody responded with you know at least these people had medical and dental and were cared for which is more than you can say for a lot of Americans living during that time. So let's remember that. So that, so the person thought the important thing for us to remember is that at least these people had medical care. That was the important thing for us to remember. Now, by the way, that happens to be, now I don't like to bring up slavery or the Nazis in every single situation, but man, is it called for here because those were the exact arguments made by slaveholders those were the exact arguments, that these northern laborers live a precarious financial existence, but our slaves are well cared for from the cradle to the grave. And that's more than we can say for the wage slaves you guys have up north. That's, so that's the same argument that, you know, yeah, these people, they may not have had their freedom, but doggone it, they had medical and dental. <sighs> anyway, heartmountain.org is the website. If you're ever in Wyoming, you should go see it. It's well worth some of your time. People who are in the diamond level of support of the Tom Woods Show, these people get something in addition to all the other benefits that you get at supportinglisteners.com. The diamond people, I physically mail them something every month, and it's something different all the time. And this time I bought everybody something at the Heart Mountain Center. So watch for that in your box. And if that appeals to you, Head over to supportinglisteners.com and you'll see how you can get some goodies when you support the Tom Wood Show. All right, today I want to talk about a very nice development. It was very smart, should have been done a lot sooner, 
And that is something called the Great Barrington Declaration. And I'm going to read it to you. The idea here is that this is a brief summary of the age-targeted strategy that some of us thought should have been followed in the pandemic from the beginning, and we're condemned and dismissed, and how dare you propose this? Well, this is what we're seeing now among some pretty significant epidemiologists and, and other experts saying that, you know, maybe instead of destroying society, we ought to do this instead. And so they came together at the urging of the American Institute for Economic Research, and we've had uh, several people from that organization on the Tom Wood Show. They came there in person for some discussion of the topic and then for the drafting and signing of the Great Barrington Declaration, which it is urged that everybody sign. Now, that would include whether you're a medical practitioner, they want you to indicate that when you sign it, medical or public health scientist, they want you to indicate that when you sign it. Or even if you're just a member of the general public like me and I signed it, just go ahead and sign it. The, the more signatures, of course, we can get on it, the better. It can be found at gbdeclaration.org. So as I'm looking at this, there are nearly 22,000 people in the general public who have signed, and then it, within the scientific community, another 2,700 or so. But of course, we want that to be these, these figures to be much higher. I'm actually going to read to you the declaration. It's not that long. And it's signed by a bunch of people. You'll see all the signatures. I mean, it would take too long to read the, the major signatories. And then we've then affixed our signatures to it. But the initial signatories are all listed here. But the three people most associated with it are the following. And these would be three people you'll know if you've been following the whole COVID thing to any extent and you're interested in something other than the Fauci point of view. The first of these is Martin Koldorf, who, as you know, was a guest here on the Tom Woods Show not too long ago, and I strongly urge you to listen to that episode. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1749, but it is episode 1741, tomwoods.com slash 1741. Martin Koldorf, professor at Harvard Medical School, got every credential you could ask for in this field. He's the first of the major signatories. The second is Dr. Sunitra Gupta, who's a professor at Oxford. And she is the, the woman Koldorf says is the premier infectious disease epidemiologist in the world. And she also thinks this is the correct strategy. And then the third one is Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor at Stanford. And I really like that guy. It'd be great if I could talk to him. I've seen him interviewed numerous times. He's just so level-headed, common sense, and smart, impressive, just seems to be looking at things completely dispassionately. He does not really want to be dragged into a political discussion. And then when you ask him about what's your impression of how the scientific community has handled this, he just says he's deeply disappointed. This is ridiculous. The, the, the sheer irrationality and politicization of, of this whole thing is, is a disaster. So let me read this to you, and I, I think you'll find it interesting and compelling. It, it reads as follows. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Coming from both the left and right and around the world, 
we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come, with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage, with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. We know that vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity, i.e. the point at which the rate of new infections is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent upon, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection, while better protecting those who are at highest risk. We call this focused protection. Adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent PCR testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households, can be implemented and is well within the scope and capability of public health professionals. Those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. And this was signed October 4th, 2020. That's the declaration. Well, this is obviously a breath of fresh air. And it should, at this point, go without saying, this is the only common sense approach there is. New York now is closing down a bunch of schools again, closing down a bunch of businesses again. You cannot run a society like this. You cannot run a business like that. Oh, every once in a while, by the way, we'll be down to zero customers indefinitely. You cannot run a business like that, which means you can't run a society like that with these completely arbitrary and sudden changes being imposed on you at all times. Meanwhile, we've got Dr. Fauci saying that if everybody's vaccinated, he thinks it's quite reasonable to expect normal life to resume probably in the spring of 2022. Now, if ever the expression get bent were called for, I'd say it's right about here. So, so, so these bastards are going to take two years of your life. They intend to take two years of your life. 
15 days to slow the spread. They must have been laughing their asses off at that one. Two years, and then you can act like a human being again. Meanwhile, we've seen, I think it was from the CDC, recommendations that you should consider having a virtual Thanksgiving this year. A virtual Thanksgiving. After months and months and months of this, they still want us to live like vegetables. A virtual Thanksgiving? Now, how about I'm planning to visit family, you know, like a human being. Ron DeSantis is governor here in Florida. And of course, he's getting savaged for saying that people ought to just resume their lives at this point. I mean, we, it's, it's probably not going to kill you. There are a lot of risks in life. And, you gotta, and, and the idea that, well, this, this risk is uniquely different because it's, there's exponential growth and all that. That's been, there's never been exponential growth. You know, remember early on when you were being solemnly lectured by, by midwits who would try to explain to you what exponential growth means because then it's two, and then four, and then 16, and then what? Okay, all right, well, look, that never happened. That never happened. Now, they'll say, oh, that's because we instituted all these measures. Even when you don't institute the measures, the virus still seems to follow a certain pattern. So they were acting like this virus probably is gonna follow whatever expected pattern you would get in chapter two of introduction to epidemiology. Let's just automatically assume that instead of looking at it. Anyway, DeSantis had a roundtable discussion with Michael Levitt of Stanford and then Drs. Bhattacharya and Koldorf, and they were just insisting that society needed to reopen, of course, and then that was the day before DeSantis decided to pull the trigger and say, we're in phase three. And you know, there are different phases and plans in different states, but in Florida, the meaning of phase three is basically that you've resumed normal life and it's up to people to make their own decisions. There's still, I believe, the state of emergency in Florida. So that still allows some localities to get away with being annoying. DeSantis has said they're not allowed to collect fines anymore for people who, you know, they're not socially distancing or whatever. They can tell people not to do it, but they can't fine them. Or the, the, the fines will be unenforceable. And apparently some localities are saying we're going to enforce the fines anyway. Well, good luck with that. Anyway, the reason I bring up DeSantis is that in that roundtable, he said something like, we should let people make their own decisions and not assume that we know what they want. So he said, for example, there are times when people go to visit their elderly relatives wearing masks and it's the elderly relative who said, take, who say, take your mask off. I want to see your smile. You know, and who are we to say, no, no, you can't do that. No, you have to, you have to greet people from 10 yards away, or you have to see them over the, the computer screen or something. We can tell them what the risks are, but especially, especially now that it's clear that the hospital capacity issue is not an issue. And for heaven's sake, at this point, how many months have they had to rectify that problem? Why not let people make the decisions they want to make? Yes, I am taking a risk by living as a human being. That's true. But that's always been true. You could live a much safer life, I suppose, as a vegetable. Maybe maybe you could. I don't know. Maybe at some level, being a vegetable actually becomes detrimental to your health, I suppose. But I could avoid some of the greatest risks by just staying home or by driving 30 miles an hour or whatever. And yet people don't live that way because that's not a life that is befitting of a human being. So I thought it was interesting that he was willing to say even that. So meanwhile, we got Fauci saying that if we all get vaccinated, 
it's quite reasonable to think we could have normal life by 2022. Well, it's pretty obvious not everyone's going to get vaccinated. I think a lot of people won't. Why bother with a, uh, a rushed vaccine when um, obviously the virus is not really a threat to pretty much anybody? I mean, any reasonably healthy person? There are some highly unlucky people, very, very rare, who will wind up with it and suffering major complications or perhaps even death. But in general, I'm not worried about this in the slightest. And that's not because I'm not listening to the science. It's because I am listening to the science. And another thing, this whole listening to the science thing, there is no science of lockdowns. Lockdowns are not a thing. This was just made up on the spot. There's no recommendation for society-wide lockdown anywhere. They just copied the Chinese who propagandized the idea that everybody needs to have a lockdown. There's no book that says you need to do this. So then when it doesn't go well, there's societies where they've locked down hard and yet they still are dealing with the virus. Instead of saying, maybe this is a dumb strategy, they come, well, they come back with, you're just not doing it right. But they're basing that literally on nothing. There is nothing that recommends this or that says this is gonna work or is a good idea. They're making this stuff up as they go and then scolding you when things don't work out the way they want them to. And then when they do work out the way they want them to, instead of saying, well, gee, they, they seem to work this way no matter what we do, they say, oh, it was because of the lockdowns. And if it's not working out, then we need to lock down harder and then harder and harder and harder and harder. It is exactly the way the left views all other aspects of government intervention and in society. So for example, as I've said before, the idea of fiscal stimulus and stuff like that, okay, we had a lot of stimulus under Obama and it did not yield the results hoped for. Unemployment went even higher than the projection said it would have gone with no stimulus. Well, geez, if we don't have the stimulus, it's gonna hit blah, blah, blah. Well, we got the stimulus and it went even higher than blah, blah, blah. And the response was, well, guess the economy must've been worse than we thought. We needed a bigger dose of stimulus. It never dawns on them. Maybe the whole approach is stupid. Maybe the whole approach just doesn't work. No, we need more of it at all times. And Bob Murphy, I hope I'm not misstating this, but has a thought experiment. He says, I mean, let's suppose there's a disease and every time you give people the medicine, they die of it. They, they die, they, right after the, the, they get the medicine, they die. Would we really be persuasive if we said, ah, well, the problem is not the medicine. It's that we didn't give them enough medicine. So the next time we give them more, they die again. Aha, the problem here is we haven't done enough. Wouldn't there be some people who would say maybe the damn medicine is the problem? Wouldn't there be somebody saying that? Or at the very least, maybe we need to rethink this approach. Maybe it doesn't solve the problems we think it's supposed to solve. Something? Hey everybody, let's take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. These are very, very difficult times and a lot of people are really struggling. They're feeling overwhelmed. Well, if there's anything that's interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can be communicating with that therapist within 24 hours. And I'll be open enough to tell you something. I've used BetterHelp. I had a time when I needed to talk something through with a neutral third party, not my friends who were gonna tell me what they thought I wanted them to say, but a neutral third party, and I couldn't have been happier with the match I got on BetterHelp. This is not self-help, it's professional counseling. 
You get timely and thoughtful responses to messages you can send to your counselor at any time, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. It's available for clients worldwide. More affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Their licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, grief, family conflicts, and more. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Well, I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash woods. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Woods. Well, meanwhile, I'm interested in the the fate of live music because I live in the general vicinity of a bunch of small venues that are just dying. They are just desperate and at very great risk of closing. We've now heard that Regal Cinemas is closing all their locations. I mentioned in my interview with Phil Labonte of All That Remains that Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, who was the third ever guest on the Tom Woods show, by the way, had written out a pretty sophisticated plan for how we could resume with musical performances. He says, certainly outdoor performances is no problem with. We should be doing that right away. Indoor performances, we probably need the following modifications. And he'd clearly really thought this out. And no doubt, it's in part because he's, what, what is, how old is he? Let me, let me try and remember. I think he was born in 47. So 53, 73, I guess. Yeah, he's 73. And he's got a lung issue. He has COPD. And he recently said that his days are numbered. And he said, and then he clarified that. He said, I, I meant as a singer, <laughs> not days to live. Uh, he said, after all, I am 73 years old. <laughs> you know, so in other words, he doesn't have that long to go in his career. And I, I don't think he wants his career to have been over without his realizing it, that he performed his last concert without knowing it. So he came out and made this proposal, even though obviously he's very, at very high risk, but he wants to live. But he came up with this reasonable plan. He submitted it to the authorities in the government that promptly proceeded to ignore him. Then on the other hand, we have Van Morrison, who I, I mentioned Van Morrison in my uh, newsletter. You should all be on my newsletter list. Go to wrongaboutlockdown.com and hop on there. It's not just about COVID stuff, but these days, naturally, most of it is. And I mentioned that Van Morrison has three protest songs coming out. One of them has already come out as of this recording. The, the next one is on the verge of coming out, but the one that's out already is Born to be Free. And then uh, the, the third of them uh, is actually called No More Lockdown. And he's basically said, look, live music's gonna die if we don't just resume and let people make intelligent choices about what they wanna do, which is how we have to live anyway. We obviously have to live that way. You cannot just indefinitely take away everything that gives people joy because then you wind up with the statistics we have now about young people contemplating suicide. It's like 18 to 24, it's like 25% contemplated it in the past month. And that's up from, uh, I wish I had the numbers in front of me because I actually sent them out in my email uh, on my, my newsletter. But the normal number is much lower. And normally they're asking, have you considered it in the past year? Well, now it's way, way up just over the past, have you considered suicide over the past month? You just can't do this. You don't have the right to do this to people. And Van Morrison has said, look, I need other performers to stand with me in this. And so far, from what I can see, it's only Eric Clapton, who's himself 75, who has stood up and supported him, calling him an inspiration 
and saying the following. This is Eric Clapton. It is deeply upsetting to see how few gigs are going ahead because of the lockdown restrictions. There are many of us who support Van and his endeavors to save live music. He is an inspiration. We must stand up and be counted because we need to find a way out of this mess. The alternative is not worth thinking about. Live music might never recover. One last thing, by the way, that makes me crazy is when people, for example, on social media saying things like, what will it take to get you to take this virus seriously? Uh, Well, how about this? I'll take it seriously after you acknowledge that the crazy voodoo that you're recommending that we do in response to it might be causing 17 forms of wreckage in non-COVID society. How about that? Is that a fair deal? I'll start taking it seriously when you admit that the fact that, according to Sunitra Gupta of, uh, of Oxford, 130 million people are at risk of starvation because of this. Once you acknowledge that maybe that's a teensy-weensy problem, then I'll, quote, take the virus seriously. How's that for a deal? And yet I bet almost no one would take me up on that because their heads would explode because they're not allowed to acknowledge trade-offs or that there are consequences to shutting societies down. Well, that's what I'm going to be talking about uh, at the Mises Institute Supporters Summit this week at Jekyll Island, Georgia. We'll get that up on YouTube. I I gave a talk at the Mises Institute in July called The Fact-Free Lockdown Hysteria. This is going to build on that, but I think be even punchier, and I'm actually really looking forward to delivering it. All right, if all goes well, tomorrow I'm going to welcome to the show somebody I have followed for the past several months very closely, who does absolutely heroic work, who deserves to be a household name, who should be, if this were a normal society, writing for the New York Times, Uh, And that's Jennifer Cabrera, who's done amazing journalistic work on the COVID catastrophe and particularly what's been going on here in Florida, where there has been so much misinformation uh, spread around the country. She's done tremendous work trying to get the truth out there. Absolutely great. So, uh, So that's coming up tomorrow, and I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.